Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. There's going to be a lot of riding in this episode, much fighting and some shock as the Boers in the field begin to observe it firsthand, the new British policy of scorched earth, where all Boer property is destroyed in an attempt to bring them to heel. What a mistake. It's a bit like the bombing blitz of the Second World War in London and elsewhere. Hitler and his henchmen thought the English would crumble if these cities were attacked by air. All this did is convince the English to fight all the more and oppose the Germans to the death. Before starting this week, I have some good news. I've been approached by a filmmaker to work on a fairly lengthy documentary series, which we hope will air on a number of outlets once complete. And in connection with this, we need to start compiling a great deal of images and even film, and if you're able to help, please do contact me through the website abwarpodcast.com or my email desmondlatham at gmail.com. That's desmondlatham with an M at gmail.com. I'll be providing more information about this in the upcoming podcasts. But exciting news, nevertheless. Back to this week's episode. It's mid-January 1901, and Denise Rates is camping on open ground as part of the commando led by General Bayers and under the overall command of General Louis Boerter when the storm of war broke once more. Rates was encamped at Ulifansfontein, or Elephant Spring, when Louis Boerter rode up with a small escort. He had lost weight in the preceding months, and Denise Rates says, He looked thinner than when I had last seen him in the Leidenberg Mountains four months ago, but he was full of energy and confidence. Boerter briefed the commanders, saying the British had decided to bring the Boers to their knees by a series of drives, in which vast numbers of troops were to sweep across the country like a dragnet. 50,000 men had been assembled along the Johannesburg-Natal railway line, and these were ready to move over the high felt on a front of 100 kilometers wide. The idea was to clear the eastern Transvaal and to take every single Boer fighter dead or alive. Rates was not aware at this particular point that the British had begun to systematically burn farms, destroy crops and carry off Boer women and children. The British had also been forcing black workers on the farms to join the prisoners in these concentration camps. After Boerter had ridden away from Olifantsfontein, Rates explained what he saw one morning. As the sun rose, the skyline from west to east was dotted with English horsemen riding in a line that stretched as far as the eye could see, and behind the screen every road was black with columns, guns and wagons moving slowly forward on the first great drive of the war. General Bayers grasped the significance immediately and divided his force in two, then rode away with one half to find the left flank of the enemy, while the rest of the Boers were told to do what they could in front of the advance. Other Boer commandos could be seen in the vast distance, little specks moving away from the British as the line of horsemen moved inexorably towards Rates and his brother, along with 500 burghers. They could do nothing but fall back all day, delaying the enemy horsemen at times by picking off a rider or his mount, then breaking away when the gunfire became too hot. This tactic continued until sunset, without much loss on either side, but the Boers were also having to deal with the deadly artillery that the British dragged with them. As they crested each small hill or kopi, the British would let loose a few shells in the Boers' direction, the commander would retreat, and so this process continued all day. This was not without real danger, as Rates describes. 
Once I saw my brother disappear from sight as a shrapnel shell burst on him, but he rode out laughing, he and his horse uninjured. The Boers then noticed pillars of smoke rising from behind the English advance. When the facts emerged about what was burning and how, there was shock. To our astonishment, we saw that they were burning the farmhouses as they came. Towards noon, word spread that not only were they destroying all before them, but they were actually capturing and sending away the women and children. The British had long been blowing up houses of those who worked with the Boers along railway lines, but this general destruction was a new phenomenon. We know that Lord Roberts and then Lord Kitchener presumed this was the best way to crush the Boers. We also know that it was a hearts and minds disaster, and this is not just historical hindsight. Many British officers opposed the system from the start as well. At first we could hardly credit this, writes Rates. But when one wild-eyed woman after another galloped by, it was borne in on us that a more terrible chapter of the war was opening. The intention was to undermine the morale of the fighting men, but the effect was exactly the opposite, he says angrily. Instead of weakening, they became only the more resolved to hold out, and this policy, instead of shortening the war, prolonged it by a year or more. Still, and in spite of their anger, the Boers were forced to retreat constantly until sunset. That night it rained, and for once the commanders could not light their fires. They were forced to sit on the hillsides in the wet, miserable. The rain, though, proved to be a mixed blessing because the British were dragging their wagons and artillery with them, and these slid and bogged down as they were pulled across the felt off-road. The English could only crawl in our wake, and we had little difficulty in keeping our distance, Raids writes. However, it was the visual effect the next morning of an entire population running like refugees that was forever etched in their minds. This flood of humanity from the farms in the vicinity hurried past, and he describes the scene reminiscent of Napoleon's march on Moscow, where Russian citizens stumbled ahead of the forces of France. The plain was alive with wagons, carts, and vehicles of all descriptions, laden with women and children, while great numbers of horses, cattle, and sheep were being hurried onwards by native herdboys, homes and ricks going up in flames behind them. In the Orange Free State, more than 500 kilometers away, General Christian de Vett had also noted that the women would rather run than be taken by the British and incarcerated. He wrote in his book Three Years' War, And the Boer woman, did they lose courage with this before their eyes? By no means, as when the capturing of women, or rather the war against them and against the possessions of the Boers commenced, they took to bitter flight to remain at least out of the hands of the enemy. His men, too, noted the wagons, loaded with grain and furniture, children and possessions, often led by their younger daughters, who would walk 18 hours a day, leading their families away from the camps. Could anyone ever have thought before the war that the 20th century should show such barbarities? asks the vet in his book. No, anyone who knows that in war, cruelties more horrible than murder can take place but that such direct and indirect murder should have been committed against defenseless women and children is a thing which I should have staked my head could never have happened in a war waged by the civilized English nation. He may have written that sarcastically, but little did he know what horrors were awaiting civilians in the two world wars waged during the 20th century of carnage.
Back in the eastern Transvaal, General Louis Buta issued an order that all non-combatants, wagons and livestock should make for Swaziland, the independent and neutral kingdom to the east, lying between the Transvaal and Portuguese East Africa. He also ordered the Boers not to fight, only to use guerrilla hit-and-run tactics so that the British would use up their precious artillery rounds firing on empty hills and valleys. And this is where, once again, the vastness of the African felt dealt the British a blow. After a few days of that force rolling across the eastern Transvaal landscape, the divisions began to break up. The British could not maintain a continuous front over the increased distances, and the troops were left groping about after the elusive Boers. However, these commandos too grew tired, but they easily evaded the lumbering columns plodding through the mud. The Times' history of the war has a chapter dedicated to this moment, and the writers do not pull punches. The policy of burning down farmhouses and destroyed crops as a measure of intimidation had nothing to recommend it, and no other measure aroused such deep and lasting resentment. The Dutch race is not one that can be easily beguiled by threats and farm burning as a policy of intimidation totally failed. Not only did it fail in South Africa, it backfired spectacularly internationally. The Boers, already seen as tough frontiersmen, were now painted as brave defenders of their homes, their family castles, so to speak. The Times continues, Applying this system was the least happy of Lord Robert's inspirations and must plainly be set down as a serious error of judgment. Behind the British advance was complete devastation. These would serve as potent reminders to the Boer commanders of why they continued to fight, at least in revenge for the destruction. Rates, meanwhile, had survived the first onslaught of this geographical cleansing and had been tasked along with his Afrikaner commando corps colleagues to patrol the areas behind Bethel and Ermelo, where only a few weeks before the Canadians had been based. He was about to face his own critical moment, however. He'd been forced to hand over the pony he'd been using, not to be confused with Malpert or Crazy Horse who we heard about last week. Denise's brother Art was using Malpert, but now Reitz's old Rome suddenly staggered under his weight. When he dismounted, Reitz realized that the animal's heaving flanks and glassy eyes meant it was suffering from the dreaded horse sickness. And only one in a hundred survived that virulent disease, as it was in this case. Nosing against me, he seemed to appeal for help, says an emotional Reitz. But he was beyond hope, and in less than an hour, with a final plunge, he fell dead at my feet. This was a great sorrow, for a close bond had grown up between us in the long months since the war started, during which he had carried me so well. And at that point, English scouts came swarming over a nearby rise. Rates removed the saddle from his dead horse, flung it over a borrowed pony, and galloped away with the rest. A week later, his brother Arndt handed over the crazy horse Malpert, saving his brother the trouble of having to purchase a new steed. The unfortunate reality for the Boers in this area, however, was that horse sickness, which is profoundly virulent, was spreading rapidly and would cause rates some difficulty, as we'll hear in coming podcasts. Across the country, though, to the far west, in the Free State, General Christian de Wett was dealing with his own set of challenges. While the farm-burning campaign had started in earnest in the eastern Transvaal to the west of the country, the full effect had not been felt just yet. Certainly, 
Boer farms were being raised, but these were usually up to 10 miles either side of the crucial railway line between Cape Town and Johannesburg, and usually as punishment because of a raid or two that had been conducted by the Boers nearby. Lord Kitchener, for all the errors he had made, had discovered a few crucial elements and truths and began to rejig his own army. Lord Roberts had wanted every Boer disarmed and Lord Kitchener was determined to continue with this policy. He must have felt that his legendary energy would make up for the previous failures, not for one was Kitchener known as the machine. To achieve efficiency, he set about reorganizing his forces. The first act was to abolish divisional actions, large units which were to be broken up and refashioned into groups or brigades. He had 38 such brigades, and at least 26 of which were led by young officers with local or temporary rank, indicating that they had been promoted as a result of proven practical skills in South Africa. This was a big change to the British military system. Previously, officers were all Sandhurst or similar trained, old school and the product of the British Imperial military system. Now they were successful officers thought of as innovative and part of a modern army. Kitchener divided the brigades into smaller groups under divisional generals and set about deploying them in regions where the Boers were particularly active, including the Free State, where General Christian de Wett lurked. This was to save time responding to guerrilla attacks, and it did eventually have a major effect on the Boer leadership, who had been used to huge divisions slowly crawling about the land. The territory was further divided into squares like a chessboard and covered by a group of brigades, each unit being allocated a clear task and a well-defined area in which to act. It was the start of 20th century warfare. Units were now living semi-permanently in each district and were encouraged to get to know their assigned territory as the Boers knew it, like the backs of their hands. It was an approach which proved more and more useful as regional knowledge increased. This regional system also helped the British mobile columns, with well-guarded provision camps established near railway lines so that columns on the move would never be far from help if attacked. They could also replenish their horses and supplies efficiently and safely. Horses were another matter entirely. As in all armies, the most valuable objects became desirable, and many of these steeds were actually stolen from fellow British units. It may seem odd now, but this was a matter of life and death for many involved in the mobile units. In some instances, English mounted troops would pilfer a horse or two from other brigades, then paint them to look different. This was described by Emmanuel Lee in his book To the Bitter End, A Photographic History of the Boer War. The death rate of these animals was also alarming. As the British moved about the countryside, their progress was tracked by vultures that could be seen wheeling about behind them. It wasn't just columns of smoke and vultures, though, from burning farms that tracked their progress. It was also an invasive weed, which remains a challenge for both animals and humans in South Africa today. It's called Kakibos, or khaki bush. This is a scraggly bush that made its way into South Africa from Argentina embedded in the fodder, which the British imported from that South American country. It infests the felt to this day, a parting gift from an invading army almost 120 years ago. Lord Kitchener, however, was working on a much more ambitious system for his men in order to improve the tactics of column movement. These were the countrywide drives or sweeps, which 
had already been tested to some extent against Louis Butter in the Eastern Transvaal and described in this podcast by Denise Rates. But the next plan was both imaginative and bizarre, as we'll hear in upcoming podcasts scheduled for March and April. So de Vette was planning his entry into the Cape, although this was still three weeks away. By early January, he'd returned to his happy hunting ground around Ronosto Refusberg and unearthed the tens of thousands of rounds of ammunition he'd hidden there five months before. We were very careful to recover every cartridge. Since it was clear that the war must still continue for a long space of time, we could have no thought of giving up the struggle whilst the pride of England would not allow her to turn back. The British commander in the region, General Knox, had divided his forces into three parts, one which had stumbled on De Vett's second-in-command, General Frunemann, who'd been joined by Commandant Prinzler near Bethlehem. That's, of course, a small town close to the Basutoland border. The three divisions were dealt defeats and skirmishes over the next week, with De Vett gloating about these small victories. These had little effect, however, on the overall campaign. But what was definitely having an effect where the two commanders were heard about in episode 64, Judge Herzog and Kritzinger. Remember, the former was heading towards the Atlantic coast of South Africa near Cape Town, while the latter was threatening Port Elizabeth on the Indian Ocean. While the British had virtually locked down all crossing points along the meandering Orange River, which lies on the border of the Cape Colony and the Free State, there was a small footpath that the English thought no horse riders could use to cross fairly mountainous terrain into the Cape. And it was precisely this crossing that De Vett planned to use to enter the territory with a far larger commander. The Boers were gearing up to launch more attacks on Cape Town and the Indian Ocean ports, and they hoped to convince their brethren in the colony to rise up. So far, the Cape Afrikaners had remained out of the war directly, although they were providing financial and other forms of support. De Vett writes, From the 8th to the 25th January, we were in the northwestern districts of the Free State. We were waiting for a suitable opportunity to make a dash into Cape Colony. So we'll leave that for two episodes' time. Right now, we must halt for the moment. Please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes and contact me regarding any pictures or film, as I mentioned, that you may have squirreled away in your family loft, or if you know of resources, we could tap for additional creative material. Of course, you can contact me through the website abwarpodcast.com or send me a direct message on Twitter as well, at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> Oh, bring me terug naar jouw transvaal.